Father, that is our prayer, our cry this morning, is that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, you know the condition of each heart that is here in the room. You know that there's some of us here today that are discouraged, beset with sorrow and suffering. There's others that may be distracted. We're so easily enticed by the cares and concerns of the world, the things in the world that promise us life and joy and safety. Lord, there's some who may feel cold and distant, others who may be apathetic. Lord, our great need, no matter what the condition of our heart, we all today need to see Christ. We need to see him as he is. We need to understand exactly what it is that he comes to do. So Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold the glory of your son and that as we see him, our faith would be strengthened, that our love for you would expand, that our capacity to love and serve others would grow. Lord, as we see your truth today, strengthen our grip on the precious realities revealed to us in your word so that we might run the race and be faithful to the end. So Lord, give us sight, give us eyes to see this morning and speak to us through your word and show us your son. Amen. Our passage of scripture for this morning is found in Luke chapter nine. Luke chapter nine, verse 18 through 22. I'd like to read our text in its entirety before we begin this morning. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Luke writes, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised." The most important question that anyone could ever answer is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? There's no shortage of answers out there, as you know. Modern Judaism, for example, rejects the divinity of Christ. They claim that Jesus is not the Messiah, that he was simply a rabbi who made some outrageous claims and even led people away from the worship of the one true God. Islam claims that Jesus was a prophet, but he was not divine and he was not crucified and did not rise from the dead. Hinduism says that Jesus is just one of many gods or one of many avatars, and, and there are many ways, many paths to salvation. Mormons believe that Jesus Christ was the firstborn spirit child of a heavenly father and heavenly mother, and that Jesus progressed to become deity in the spirit world and was then later physically conceived in Mary's womb. Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus is divine. They say that he is the archangel Michael who has come down in human form and that when he died, he rose again spiritually, but not physically. Secularists and progressive Christians, which is kind of the same thing, they say that Jesus was a great moral example, that he was a dynamic teacher, but he was not the son of God in human flesh who literally rose from the dead. 
Feminists will say that Jesus was a liberator of women. LGBTQ activists will say he was an advocate of tolerance and acceptance. Socialists will paint him as the enemy of capitalism. Pacifists will insist that Jesus opposed all forms of violence. Basically, everybody wants to claim Jesus as their mascot. But here's the issue. Despite all of these various views of Jesus, there's only one that's true. There's only one that's right, only one that is correct. And what's more, there's only one view of Jesus that leads us to salvation. You see, salvation requires personal knowledge of Jesus, true knowledge of Jesus, knowledge that actually comes from Jesus. Luke, the author of this gospel, knows this. In fact, he wants us to know who Jesus really is. He wants us to understand why Jesus really came and to believe it wholeheartedly. That's why he produced this book for Theophilus. Chapter one, verse four, Luke says he's written this account so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things he had been taught. He wants him to know the truth, to be confident in it, to be committed to it. The truth of who Jesus is, why Jesus came and what it is that Jesus accomplished in his life, his death and his resurrection. So what is it that we must know about Jesus? Well, in this text, I want to point out two things that we have to know. Two things that Jesus made sure that the 12 knew and understood as he taught them, as he spent time with them. And the first is this, and we see it in verses 18 through 20. First of all, we have to know who Jesus is. We must acknowledge his identity as the Christ. We must acknowledge his identity as the Christ. We pick up in the story here in verse 18. This is after Jesus has fed the crowds, these multitudes, by multiplying the bread and the fish. And Jesus and the disciples are finally alone. If you remember, Jesus had been trying to get alone for a while, trying to find some time for rest, trying to find some time for prayer. We find Jesus praying here, as he often does, before big moments. Uh, He prays, for example, before he selects the 12 who will be with him. He prays the night before his arrest and his crucifixion. And we see him praying now. And it sort of builds our anticipation for what comes next. And then coming out of this season of prayer, Jesus poses a question to his disciples. He asks them this question. Verse 18, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am. Things have actually been building to this point for a while. If you remember back in chapter 7, verse 19, Luke tells us that John the Baptist sent messengers who asked Jesus who, who he was. They said, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? Who is Jesus? The disciples themselves utter this astonished question. After Jesus calms the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee, they cry out, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. And as we saw before, as the message about Jesus goes out, as the the 12 pair off two by two to preach the good news throughout Israel, Herod hears about Jesus. And he says, John, I beheaded, but who is this? about whom I hear such things? This is the key question. 
In fact, Luke has even skipped several stories that the other gospel authors include because he wants these questions to all stack up. He wants them to all be close together in a row. And he wants to bring us now to this moment where Jesus brings this question to the disciples. Who do the crowds say that I am? The disciples have been traveling. They've been on this preaching tour. They've personally distributed food to thousands and thousands of people. So no doubt they've heard things. They have a sense of what the word is on the street about Jesus. And there's a few different ideas that are floating around. They give various answers in verse 19. They answered John the Baptist. Some people think and are saying that Jesus is John the Baptist. This man, John, had a dynamic preaching ministry. Jesus has a dynamic preaching ministry. John's ministry gained national attention. So has Jesus's. John's ministry did not win him any friends in the religious establishment. Well, that seems a lot like Jesus as well. John had come announcing that the Messiah was coming. He called people to repent and to be baptized. But John had been imprisoned and John had been executed by Herod. He had his head cut off. And we look back in earlier in chapter 9, we find that Herod was suspicious. He says, John, verse 9, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. I don't know if Herod is paranoid or if he's just hearing this theory and he's like, I got to figure this out. But that was a popular theory. Perhaps Jesus is John, come back from the dead. But others thought that Jesus was Elijah. Elijah was a powerful prophet of old. One who ministered in the kingdom of Israel many, many years prior. And he was someone who actually never died. In 2 Kings chapter 2, we find that Elijah is walking with his protege, Elisha, that he was mentoring. And that God actually sends down this fiery chariot and takes Elijah straight to heaven. They never found his body. That led to this sort of expectation that God's not done with Elijah. In fact, later, the prophet Malachi says in two different places that before the kingdom is established, before the Messiah comes, that Elijah would return and prepare the way. Some people thought maybe Jesus is Elijah. In fact, Jesus has done several miracles that are even reminiscent of Elijah's ministry. Elijah had miraculously multiplied food for a widow and her son. Oil and flour that kept going and never ran out. Jesus had miraculously multiplied food, loaves and fishes for thousands of people that never ran out. Later, Jesus had even, or Elijah, had even raised that widow's son from the dead. Jesus had raised a widow's son from the dead as well. So there's these parallels, and some people are thinking maybe Jesus is that prophet, Elijah, who has come back. But others have a different theory. They say, well, not Elijah specifically, but maybe it's one of the other prophets. One of the prophets of old has risen. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, we find that some people even named Jeremiah as one of the, the options. Maybe it's Jeremiah or one of the other ancient prophets who's come back because Israel once again needs revival and they need repentance and they need, they need a word from God and Jesus is doing that for the nation Israel. So whether it's John or Elijah or the prophets of old, this is actually high praise. The people recognize that the power of God is at work in Jesus. The power of God is at work in Elijah and the other prophets. And most people believe that Elijah truly was a modern prophet from God. So they see that something special is happening 
but their view of Christ is still inadequate. These answers fall short. Jesus is unique. He's not just another in a series of prophets. He is something far greater. As one commentator put it, Jesus is not the messenger. He is the message. He is something far greater than any who have come before him. But I think Jesus probably already knows what people are saying about him. And this question to the disciples is really just a setup for the next question that he really wants to ask. He wants to push in deeper with the 12. He's asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? But then in verse 20, he says to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? In the various gospel accounts of this story, in every one of them, the word you is emphatic. You, who do you say that I am? Don't just tell me what you've heard. Don't just tell me what some people think. I want to know what you believe. This is what Jesus is after with the 12. He has called them. He has taught them. He has shown them his power by his miracles and his mighty works. And now he's testing them. He wants to know what they believe, who they think that he is. This is why he started this conversation. And this is, I think, probably even what Jesus has been praying about. It's an important test of their faith. Are they going to get it right? We see here that Peter speaks up on behalf of the group. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Peter and those who are standing with him, those who nod along in agreement as he speaks as their representative, they are believing what Jesus has been saying. They are believing the good news of the kingdom, that God is fulfilling his promises. And they're believing in Jesus, that he's more than a prophet, that he is the Christ. He is the Christ. What does that word Christ mean? Some people today, if you ask them, Jesus Christ, what do those words mean? They would say, well, isn't Jesus his first name and Christ is his last name, like my last name is Summers and his last name is Christ. I know when I was a little kid, that's how I thought of it at first, but that's not what Christ means. Christ is not a name so much as it is a title. It is Christos, which is the Greek word that actually is referencing an Old Testament word, the anointed one. It means the one who is anointed. The Hebrew word is Mashiach, where we get our word Messiah from. Peter is saying, I believe you are the anointed one. I believe you are the Christos, the, the Messiah, the one that God has chosen and appointed and empowered to fulfill all of his promises. In the Old Testament, there were three different offices of people that were anointed, that were set apart for a specific task. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. Kings were anointed for their service. And as they were anointed, this set them apart for their duties. It was a recognition of God's special calling on their lives, that God had a special role for them to play in and among his people, prophet, priest, or king. And Peter is confessing here that Jesus is all three. He is the ultimate prophet. He is the great high priest who would make atonement for sin. He is the son of David, the king of kings, the one who is to come, the one God is sending to deliver his people and bring about the fulfillment of all those promises, all of those longings, all of those expectations from the Old Testament. As Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, this is, first of all, a true confession. It's a true confession. Jesus is not John. 
He's John's cousin. (laughs) They're not the same. Jesus is not Elijah. Elijah was a man, a man with sins and frailties and weaknesses. Jesus is not Elijah. Elijah never claimed to be the son of God. Jesus is not a returned prophet who died long ago and has been resurrected to fulfill a a new prophetic duty. No, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the savior who has been sent into the world and he is anointed to fulfill a mission, a mission that is unlike Elijah's, a mission that is unlike John's, a mission that is unlike any of the other prophets. It is a mission of salvation. It's not just a true confession. It's also a courageous confession, isn't it? Think about it. Peter is in the minority. Some people say that Jesus is Elijah or that he's John or that he's some other prophet. But who's out there saying that Jesus is the Messiah? Not many. But Peter does. He goes against the flow. And the disciples with him nod in agreement. For all of Peter's weaknesses... For all of his failures prior to this and after this, despite the fact that he's still very much in process, he's very much learning, he is not yet mature, Peter is willing to stand alone and confess this truth that Jesus is the Christ. This is a courageous confession. He's not polling the audience. He's not strategically picking which team he wants to be on based on who he thinks the majority is. No, he recognizes the truth and he's willing to say it no matter if he's the only one who believes it. It's a courageous confession, but it's also a supernatural confession. Why does Peter get it? Why is he courageous to say this? And why do none of the crowds, none of the people in the crowd seem to get it? Well, consider this, that the same God who in judgment conceals the truth from the hard-hearted is also mercifully revealing truth to Peter. This is a revelation of the Holy Spirit. In the gospel of Matthew, we find that Jesus's immediate answer to Peter's confession is, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't come up with this on your own. There's no one else who told this to you and helped you along. He said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The reason that Peter got it Yes, he had faith. Yes, he was courageous. Yes, Jesus had been teaching and showing, but ultimately this is a gift of grace. God is opening Peter's eyes and the eyes of others to this reality that this is who Jesus is. This is actually the first time we've seen a human being profess this truth in the gospels. We've heard this truth come from the mouth of the angel Gabriel in chapter 1, verse 25, as he tells Mary about her son that will be born and tells her that he will be the son of God. We've seen God the Father pronounce this truth in chapter 3. When Jesus is baptized, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We've even seen the demons cry out in chapter 4, in two different places, verse 34 and 41, that Jesus is the Holy One of God and that he is the Son of God, and Jesus tells them to be silent. So it's not the first time we've seen this truth confessed, but it's the first time we've seen a man open his mouth and declare the truth that Jesus is the Christ. Peter says it, and it matters. This is essential for disciples of Jesus to confess that Jesus is the Christ. Listen, there is no saving faith apart from recognizing the identity of Jesus. This is something you must believe. We must believe 
that Jesus is the Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says that we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We cannot simply say that he is a great moral teacher. We cannot simply confess that he set us a wonderful example, that he was a rabbi or even a prophet. No, we must confess that Jesus is Lord. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This is salvation. To be born again, to be born of God, means that you are alive spiritually, that you have been saved, and it requires confession that Jesus is the Christ. In John's gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, these things are written. These gospel testimonies that I am writing, and Matthew is writing, and Mark is writing, and Luke is writing, he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Listen, there is no saving faith apart from recognizing the true identity of Jesus. We must know who he is. Salvation requires this personal knowledge of Jesus, acknowledging his identity as the Christ. But there's a second thing we need to know that Jesus lays out. That's point number two. We not only need to know who Jesus is and acknowledge his identity as the Christ, but we also must know why he came. We need to know why Jesus came. We need to understand his mission as the Christ. Jesus' response to Peter's confession in Luke's gospel is twofold. We see it in verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus does two things. First of all, he strictly charges and commands them to tell no one. He says, don't tell anyone this truth. Don't go spreading this part of of the the things that I'm teaching you, my true identity. And we might scratch our heads and go, why? Why wouldn't Jesus want his disciples to go tell everyone that he is the Christ, that he is God's anointed, the true Messiah? Well, I think he tells them this because Jesus knew that the people of Israel, though they might grasp his identity, they would misunderstand his mission. They would misunderstand his mission and they would therefore respond to this message that Jesus is the Christ, not with repentance, which is what Jesus is after. Instead, they would respond with revolution. You see, the people of Israel knew that God's promise was to restore them, to restore their nation. And they longed for that. They longed for this deliverance from the oppression of Rome. They longed to be restored nationally and culturally and economically Even spiritually, they they wanted this renewal for for the chosen nation. But this restoration that God promised, it requires repentance. And to be honest, the people of Jesus' day were not as excited about the repentance part as they were about the restoration part. The spiritual rescue that they really needed required that Jesus suffered and died. And that's not the kind of hero that they were expecting. And Jesus knew that if they spread this message that he was the Christ, the wrong kind of response would happen at this point, at this time in history. 
In fact, John tells us in his gospel that following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had, had already experienced some of this misplaced messianic fervor. John 6, 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You're not the ones who are going to make me king. My heavenly father does that. And now is not the time to be made king. I have other things I need to do first. So that's why Jesus withdraws and he does not allow them to crown him as their Messiah, to hail him as their king because they didn't get it. They weren't ready. And he had other things that he needed to do first. I think those people in the first century of Israel are a lot like many people today. There's many who are interested and even excited about what Jesus can do for them, but they don't understand his mission. They don't understand the necessity of his suffering and his death. They don't recognize that their true need is to have their sin forgiven, to have the distance between them and God closed. They need to be reconciled through faith, but they're more interested in Jesus healing their physical illnesses, restoring their human relationships, giving them success in their career, giving them a a reconciled and happy and healthy family. They're very excited about what Jesus can do for them, but they neglect to understand the true nature of his mission. They may be interested in some of those benefits that Jesus can bring, but they're not necessarily interested if it requires humility and submission and repentance and and definitely not if there's a cost. You see, Jesus had not come to bring about a revolution. Jesus had come to die for sins. So this confession of, of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, that's great, that's wonderful, that's necessary, but they now need to understand what kind of Christ he is. They need to understand exactly what his mission is. So this is somewhat of a turning point in Jesus' training. Aha, you get it. You understand now who I am. You believe that I'm the Christ. Great. Now I'm going to start teaching you about the kind of Messiah I came to be. One who must experience suffering before I experience glory. A Messiah who would receive a cross before he would receive the crown. It is only after his suffering and death and resurrection that they would be turned loose to tell the world about the Messiah because then the message would be complete. Yes, Jesus is the Christ, but specifically he is a Christ who came to suffer and die and rise again. That's the whole message and that's what people need to hear. So for now, the disciples are to tell no one. So he says, first of all, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. And then he starts to explain why there is this pressing necessity upon him. He says in verse 22, as he strictly charges them and commands them not to tell anyone, he explains, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There are four things that Jesus says he must experience. He's going to suffer, first of all. Jesus is going to suffer. He's going to be betrayed by a friend. He's going to be mocked. There's going to be an unjust trial. 
He's going to be slandered and falsely accused. He's going to experience a great amount of cruelty as he is beaten, scourged, as he has thorns pressed upon his head, as he is spat on. Jesus is going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected, secondly, by the elders and chief priests and scribes. The reference to these, these different kinds of people is a reference to the Sanhedrin. It's the, the ruling body of 70 that were uh, the functional rulers of Israel. Yes, Rome was in charge, but they had, had tried to give the Jews a, a lot of independence to handle their own religious matters, handle their own social matters, cultural matters. And the Sanhedrin was that ruling body made up of elders and made up of scribes, scribes who who were really the lawyers who studied God's law and explained exactly how it applied to different matters of Jewish life. And so this group of elders and scribes, the 70, was led by one, the high priest. The high priest, and along with his very influential family, including some former high priests, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, his family, they would be the ones responsible for formally rejecting Jesus they would be the ones who would condemn him to death. And this would have been shocking to the disciples. Not only that the son of man, this triumphant character from the Old Testament, would be rejected, but that he would be rejected by Israel's religious leaders. They should have been the first ones to recognize who he is. They should have been the ones to endorse him and promote him. And instead, Jesus says, they're going to reject him. He's going to suffer. He'll be rejected and then third, Jesus says he must be killed. He will be put to death. Again, the disciples' heads must have been spinning. How can the Son of Man, this triumphant figure, be killed? How does losing help us win? How does dying factor into the establishing of an eternal throne? They don't understand. And then Jesus says, well, death is not the end. He must, after three days, be raised. He lays out, these are the things that must happen. This is what I came to do. This is the nature of my mission. It's not what you think. It's not this political revolution. It's not an uprising in Israel with me carrying a sword and riding a horse at the head leading us to freedom. That's not what I'm here to do this time. Jesus lays out this clear explanation of exactly the kind of Messiah he came to be and what it is that he came to accomplish. And there's one little word in here that's very, very important. It's the word must. The word must. Look in verse 22. The Son of Man must. It is a matter of necessity that these things take place. Another way you could translate this word must is that it is necessary. It is necessary that these things happen to the Son of Man. We see this same um, emphasis on the necessity of this mission elsewhere in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 24, at the resurrection, the angel tells the bewildered witnesses there at the empty tomb, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? This is necessary. In Luke chapter 24, verse 45, Jesus is walking along the, the road to Emmaus with two, two of his disciples, and they don't recognize who he is. And it says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. There's that same emphasis on necessity. 
and on the third day rise from the dead. In Acts chapter 17, as the apostle Paul preaches, he explains and proves that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Jesus says, this is a matter of necessity. Why is his suffering and death and resurrection so necessary? Why must this happen? Why can't Jesus just skip this part and establish the kingdom? This takes us back to the temptation in the wilderness, doesn't it? Remember what Satan tempted Jesus with? He offered him a kingdom. He offered him glory. He offered him the nations, all things that were rightfully his. But the temptation was that Jesus would skip this part, that he would skip the suffering, that he would bypass the rejection, that he would take a detour around the cross and instead of dying and rising again, just cut to the end and get all the stuff that he so rightly deserved. And Jesus said no. Jesus said no. He knew that this was his mission. It was necessary that he suffer and die and rise. I think there's two reasons why. First of all, this is the only way to bring salvation. If Jesus doesn't suffer and die and rise again, if he's not rejected, then there is no salvation. Later on in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would pray, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. He knows how, how incredibly difficult this experience is going to be. But there isn't another way. There's simply not. It is necessary. He must suffer, die, and rise. There must be atonement. There must be a perfect sacrifice. There must be victory over death itself. And Jesus comes to do that. This is his missional necessity. So it's a necessity. It must happen because this is the only way to bring about salvation. But secondly, this is necessary. Jesus must do this because this is what his father ordained would take place. This is the sovereign plan of God. And Jesus had been chosen for this. He had been appointed to this mission and he was committed to personally obey the will of his father and carry out the outworking of this plan. He is the Christ of God, the anointed, appointed, chosen one who came to do God's will. We see this plan in the Old Testament. Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent like Genesis 3 promised. But what happens in the crushing of the serpent's head? It would bruise his heel. This victory would bring injury and suffering to the rescuer. The servant of God that Isaiah 53 tells us about, the one who would sprinkle many nations, he would be despised and rejected by men. It would be by his wounds that we are healed. This is God's plan. This is what God had ordained. This is what God had promised. Daniel chapter nine, verse six tells us that the anointed one, the Messiah, the one chosen by God would actually be cut off. This is God's sovereign plan. The New Testament confirms that the suffering and death of Jesus was no tragic failure. Jesus is not a victim. He is rather a willing participant in God's sovereign plan. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter preaches that this Jesus was delivered up, meaning he was delivered up in his betrayal and his arrest and in being sent to the cross. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is God's sovereign plan that Jesus suffer and die. 
Acts chapter three, verse 18 says that what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. The believers in Acts chapter four pray this way as well. They, they quote Psalm two and say, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They were against Jesus, the Christ. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Listen, there are many who struggle with this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that God would ordain all things, that God would predestine all things to take place. Listen, we want predestination to be true. We want God to be sovereign because that's how we get the gospel. That's why Jesus died on the cross, because God ordained and planned that this would take place. It is necessary that Jesus suffer these things because it's the only way to save us and because this was the Father's perfect plan. Jesus will be a suffering Savior. And because of this, at the end of chapter 9, we will soon see in verse 51 that as the days draw near for him to be taken up, Jesus will set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sets his face, clenches his teeth, hardens his jaw, and makes a beeline for the cross because this is why he came. Friends, we not only need to understand Jesus' identity, who he is, we also must understand his mission, why he came, that he came to suffer and to die for sinners. Now, I do want to make one clarification here on this point. I think there's a lot of well-meaning interpreters that will read through passages like this and they'll say, see, these people wanted deliverance from Rome, but Jesus is not a political savior. Jesus' kingdom is spiritual, it's not political, it's not physical, and these people are missing it. But I don't think that's actually true. That's, a, a, I think, a wrong criticism of the people's expectations for a Messiah. Because what Israel was longing for, what they were desiring and expecting, this national restoration, that wasn't some pipe dream. That's not something they came up with on their own. That's something God had promised them in the Old Testament. It was promised that David's son would establish his throne in Zion. It was promised that their, their enemies would be vanquished, that they would be restored to their land, that they would be restored politically and economically and spiritually. This, is what, this was part of God's covenant with them. So what they were wanting is not invalid. I want to make that clear. It is not an invalid desire or expectation and this covenant promise, this desire, this expectation is not done away with. Jesus isn't saying not that and instead I'm doing this. No, Jesus simply came to suffer first. To do something that to them might have been unexpected. To, to die on a cross and rise again to provide atonement for them. And not just for them as Israelites, but also for, for all who would come and believe, for the Gentiles. So what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching them about his messianic mission. He's not telling them that their previous expectations were wrong. Rather, he's saying, listen, I have other business to attend to first. I must suffer and die and rise before that restoration can take place. Israel's sins needed addressed before they could experience that national restoration. See, Jesus' kingdom is physical. And Jesus is a political Messiah. 
And there's a time coming when Jesus returns, when that shoe is going to drop, when those expectations are going to be fulfilled. It's just not yet. And so Jesus is explaining that their hopes and their longings were not wrong in terms of the nature of them. It's just simply a matter of the timing. And he wanted them to understand this. I think Jesus confirms these things in Acts chapter 1. After Jesus is rejected, after he suffers, after he dies, he rises again. He's spending time with his disciples. And right before he ascends into heaven, listen to what happens in Acts chapter 1 verse 6. It says, so when they have come together, these disciples, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're saying, okay, we see it, we get it. You died, you rose again. All the things you said would happen, happened. So now comes the next part, right? Now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And how does Jesus answer? It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's amazing to me how Jesus responds. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, don't you idiots get it? It's a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. Don't you get it? I, I'm not coming to establish Israel and set you free. I was coming to do this, this other thing. No. He doesn't tell them they're misunderstanding his promises. He doesn't tell them they're misunderstanding who he is as the Messiah. He simply says, hey, that's a great question, but it's not yet. It's not yet. And it's not for you to know the timing of all of that. Instead, I simply want you to go and preach the gospel and wait for that day. Wait for my return when I will come and restore the kingdom to Israel. So I want to make that clear because I think sometimes the disciples and the crowds, they get a bad rap as if they want the wrong kind of Messiah. But the problem with their expectation is that they miss that Jesus is doing more than driving out political enemies. First, he comes to deal with their spiritual need. Later, he will come to establish the kingdom. So as Jesus has this discussion in Luke 9 with his disciples, just to summarize, he really wants them to see two things. He wants them to know two things. First, that he truly is the Messiah, the Christ. And second, he wants them to know what kind of Messiah he is, to understand that his mission includes rejection and suffering and death and resurrection. Before it gets to all the establishment of the kingdom. So friends, what do we take from this? Saving faith requires personal knowledge of Jesus. You need true knowledge of Jesus. You need to know who he is. You need to know why he came. And if that feels really basic to you today, if this feels like Christianity 101, that's because it is. This is essential. This is the foundation of our faith we can't leave today without considering the same question that Jesus asked the disciples. Who do you say that Jesus is? You know, the world defines being a Christian in terms of morals. What do you think is right and wrong? What do you think about certain ethical issues? What do you think about tolerance and inclusivity? What do you think about all of these various questions? But scripture defines Christianity in different terms. What do you think about Jesus? That's the main question. Listen, if you're not a Christian today, that's the first thing you need to get figured out. Not what do you think about all these other issues and questions and, and all these other biblical questions. We could go all throughout scripture and find all of these difficult passages to interpret. And look, there's one question. 
that you have to answer. Who do you think Jesus is? All those other things do matter, but they flow from, they're secondary to this central issue. This is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? Do you believe that his suffering and death and resurrection really happened and that it has the power to save you? That's the question. I I can't help but think especially of, of some of the kids in the room. I know we have some really young kids, kids that are three, four, five, elementary school. And you're here because your parents make you. This is what some people call mandatory fun. You're going to church today, whether you like it or not, right? And your parents believe that Jesus is the Christ. Your parents believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And, and maybe you even agree with them. You say, yeah, yeah, I, that, that's, that's what my parents believe. And you might even understand that, yeah, that's what my church teaches. The church I go to teaches that Jesus is the Christ and that he died and rose again for sin. But listen, kids, little kids, teenagers, high schoolers, it's not enough for your parents to believe this. Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he's the Christ? Are you trusting in his death and resurrection to save you from your sins? It's not enough to just go along with what other people believe. It's not enough just to understand what the church teaches. This needs to become your confession. J.C. Ryle wrote centuries ago, It will not save us to talk and speculate and exchange opinions about the gospel. The Christianity that saves is personally grasped, personally experienced, personally felt, and personally processed. What are you today going to do with the claims of Jesus Christ? Do you know him? If you don't, then believe. Believe today. Believe in your own heart for your own self that Jesus is the Christ and that he died to save sinners, that he rose again. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Put your trust in him and you will be saved. Many of you today here do know Jesus. You say, JD, I have heard this before. So what's the takeaway for you? Listen, if you do know Jesus, if you can join Peter in that confession, then your response today is to rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice for this reason, because God, just like he did for Peter, has graciously by his spirit given you this gift of faith. He has opened your eyes to see what so many other people can't see. So many other people miss it. So many other people don't understand who Jesus is. So many other people don't trust in his work, but you do. And that is God's kindness to you. So no matter what suffering or difficulty or disappointment is in your life, you have Christ, which means you have life. And that is a cause for joy. That is a cause for gratitude. We not only have true knowledge of Christ, we actually have Christ himself. All the things in the world that promise us happiness, all the things in the world that we spend our lives chasing after and trying to hold on to, They are all unworthy of our hope. But if we have Christ, we have all. We have a savior. We have God's best, his anointed one. The one who came to fulfill a mission of salvation for us. And that is good news. What should be the response of people who have received good news? It should be joy. 
This good news is meant to bring life and joy, a joy that that fits us for service, a joy that focuses our vision. It's a joy that, that strengthens the weak. It's a joy that crushes our sinful desires. It's a joy that fuels our worship. It's a joy that sustains our love and our service towards other people. So friends, if you know Christ, if you can confess the truth today, rejoice. Rejoice that Christ is yours and you are Christ's. May our confession of Christ be true and never waver. And may this true confession in our church be a joyful confession, a bold confession, a public confession, no matter if the world agrees with us or not, as we continue to look to Jesus and learn from him and follow him and trust him.